We're here for our third session this afternoon here at GYC West. And this afternoon we are going to take a two-part message here. Our first portion of our message today will be focusing on God's glorious plan for our families. And we'll just sort of lay out a vision for our family and the realities of Satan's attack on God's institution. And then in part two, we will talk about the solution for strengthening the family. So we pray that as we share some of these principles, some of our thoughts with you, that you will listen to what the Holy Spirit would have you to do with your family. And by the way, we would just like to mention that since we are here at GYC West, and this is what we were asked to speak of, we know that we have young people who are going to be listening to these messages as well, and they may say, well... I don't have a family right now, but we want to encourage you that as you sort of listen to some of these things that we're going to share, that you can begin to prepare for success, because I have to tell you that the enemy is not committed to the success of a godly, God-fearing family, not at all. So why don't we just bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we will begin. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the opportunity that we have today to share from our hearts what you have taught us. And we pray, Father, that those who are here will take the principles that are shared and use them as your Holy Spirit indicates, that they may be determined to have a family that will be God-honoring. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we want to begin at the outset by saying that the concept of family has been in the heart of God throughout eternity. And this is long before he created Adam and Eve, because God is a part of a family. And he has existed throughout all eternity and this family, very much where they were uh, of one heart and mind. So God understanding what family is about, God being uh, having the kingdom related on love, we recognize that relationships is important to him. And so as we begin to look at God's character and throughout the scriptures, we can see pictures of how God wants to relate to us. And, you know, it can start off in the Garden of Eden. When he came in and he would walk and talk in the evening with Adam and Eve. And we can also see how, as God related to man, how man's heart was captured by the love of God, like Enoch. So captured that God just said, come on in and just keep walking and just come with me to heaven. And he did that. But also, even in the stories that we would read to our children of the little maid. How many of you young people know about the story of the little maid? Absolutely you do. And even though she was taken out of her family, away as a captive in a strange land, nevertheless, having God as her family even though she was not with her own family, and how God can use her to reach other people is just such a wonderful testimony to what love can do. Well, we can see based on the reading of the book of Psalms, and and I'm now currently reading Psalms, and as I read the accounts of David and as he talks about God, I have to tell you, for a person very left brain like myself, just to hear his description about his just his absolute love of God and how he depended upon God's love for him to protect him from his enemies is just a marvelous thing to see. Well, this has inspired us when we, about 20 plus years ago, as young parents, we began to respond to the loving entreaties of God 
and began to think about how we could be more intentional about our relatedness to God and how it would impact on our family. You know, we wanted to be able to relate to God as Enoch related to God. And so God began to lead us on a journey which has been rich, filling us with a lot of meaning and purpose in our lives. And he has helped to turn our hearts, the hearts of us parents, toward our children and the hearts of our children to us as parents. So we want to share with you some of the insights that we have gained throughout that journey. You know, for years, our family has desired to be more responsive to God's love, more capable of fulfilling his vision for families, and more grounded in his word, and more steadfast in our faithfulness to our understanding of what that word called us to do, not just as individuals, but as a family. And how we could be more efficient in our service for God as, as we were doing that. So we began to ask ourselves some questions. Questions like this. How do we shape, we parents, shape a godly vision for our family at this time in earth's history? Another question we asked ourselves was, how do we reveal the character of God and communicate that vision to our children? And how do we lead our children to develop a passion for God's service, for rescuing the lost, and inspiring them to stand alone when all around them, their friends or others, were completely disloyal to God? So in praying and studying to answer these questions, we were led into deeper study to broaden our understanding of what God's purpose was for the family. So... As we began to understand it, we began to, I began to read the Bible from the perspective of family. And one of the first Bible patriarchs that I saw that exemplified my understanding of what the family was about was Abraham. I'm sure you all could relate to this. You know, this, when I began to read what God had to say to Abraham and to other patriarchs about the family, it was very interesting what I read. If you have your Bibles with you, or if you can turn to the Word of God, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first two verses. Now, what we began to see as we saw how God made covenants with Adam and with other of uh, the uh, patriarchs in the Bible, there was something that you would, very interesting that we would read. You know, the family of man would either receive blessings or curses depending upon whether they obeyed or disobeyed the commandments of God. But let us take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now, here's what we read. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now, look at this that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. Now he's telling the patriarchs what they need to do. To keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee. Now who did God direct the instruction to keep the statutes to? To thou, and who else? Thy son and thy son's sons. So God was not just simply saying, Abraham, Enoch, Adam, you keep my commandments. No, he's saying not only do you keep your commandments, but your sons keep it, and your sons' sons, and your sons' 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 sons. You get the idea. The point is, 
that when all these generations were to keep it, all the days of thy life, your days may be prolonged. So what this is identifying, we believe, are families that are covenant keepers and that are prepared to serve him. So what can we do today to cooperate with God, to set up our families for spiritual prosperity? Not just Edwin, but Edwin's sons. And until God comes, Edwin's sons' sons and the generations to follow. We have been told in Adventist home that the family tie is the closest, the sweetest, the most sacred and tender on earth. God intends that the home be a place of love, a place of peace and joy, light, sympathy, and tenderness, a place where, quote, angels love to visit. God purposed that the members of a family would find right within the family love, fulfillment, a strong sense of identity and purpose for life. Now, this is not the way that it always has been in our family. But as we have increasingly embraced God's principles, we have experienced for ourselves increasingly that the service of God is the greatest privilege. It is the most profound source of joy and fulfillment and the highest attainment to which anyone can aspire. This experience and these convictions have become a part of our, our philosophy, our, our vision for life, our quest. As we have prayed and studied, as we have fallen and sinned against each other time and time again, as we have repented and persevered in learning to surrender to Him, we have tasted more and more of the blessings that He longs to impart to all families. We find ourselves connected, happy, secure, and empowered and equipped with the most powerful evangelistic tool in our hands. As Edwin mentioned, God called each of the patriarchs to raise that kind of a family that would bless the world with a knowledge of God. He stated his purpose again and again as he communicated it to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when he told them that he wanted all the families of the earth to be blessed through their families. Therefore, I think it is safe to conclude that a godly home is to be a training school for missionaries. Wouldn't you say that? A godly family is to be, we are told, a light in the community, the most powerful sermon that can be preached, an argument that the infidel cannot gainsay, a source from which will flow streams of healing to a sin-sick, hurting world. Friends, this is a high and holy calling, a glorious purpose. And as we look at his promises, again, we notice that those promises were made not just to those just men, but to be fulfilled in their children and their children's children. Now, how does that happen? You see, he wants us as parents to be so committed, so surrendered to him. He wants our influence to, be, influence to be so life-changing that it will impact not only our own lives, but our children's lives, and through our children, their children's lives. 
as we consider that glorious purpose and we look around at families today, both in the world and in the body of Christ, we see that the family is hurting. At best, it is handicapped. It is crumbling. It is a far cry from the beautiful design that God has communicated to us. It begs that we ask the question, what has happened? What has gone wrong? The answer is, an enemy has done this. Satan has employed all of his ammunition to wage war on the family and has used some key figures in history, we'll talk about some of those, who have been very loyal subjects to him and have had a pernicious influence on the people of God, on the body of Christ. He has caused us through years and decades to fail to appreciate, to love the Word, to cherish it and live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We are lukewarm. We lack discernment. We are not being sanctified through the truth as He has prayed that we be sanctified through the truth. We have failed to separate from the world, and the world um, has had an influence on us. Unconsciously, we have adopted worldly philosophies and customs. Traditional values, biblical values, have in subtle ways become distasteful to us. And step by step, we have been embracing more and more of what the world thinks, what the world believes, and we have been discarding the precious principles of the Word as outdated. Isaiah issues a warning that we would um, do well to heed. And this is, oh, I'm sorry, I keep doing this, not, not writing down um, exactly where I got it. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Does that sound familiar? That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. One of those philosophies, friends, that we have um, adopted from the world has been, um, it has been a real antagonist of the family. And it is the, the philosophy of individualism. And Sean will talk a little bit about that. Another one of those philosophies, even more harmful, has been feminism. These ideologies have been tearing down the fabric of God's institution of marriage and the family and paving the way for the disintegration of the family that we see today. All right, so some other mentioned the, uh, the influence of individualism as being one of those things that is really, <clears throat> that has become an antagonist of the success of families. And the idea that someone would be, I mean, in our day and age, to, to be anti-individualism is like, you know, what is your problem? Because in people's minds, the idea, the concept of individualism is built upon a good principle. Every person has value. You know, is that true or not true? Of course, this is true. But individualism is, is like, I think it's a, per, I know, it's a perversion of something beautiful. And, 
as we consider um, the roots, where it came from, I think there's no, there's no denying what place it should have in our lives. Go back with me in your minds to the very beginning, <clears throat> when, when God is giving Adam first grand tour um, of the place. God looks at what he has done, and everything is perfect and beautiful, except for one thing. And that is poor Adam all alone. He's like, this is good, 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 very good. Adam by himself, not good, not good. The first thing God created <clears throat> that he realizes now is incomplete. Now, I think, he, I think he realized from the beginning it would be incomplete, but I think he, he left that, the record as it states for our benefit. Because then he created Eve, and the two of them together become good. Amen. Now then... Fast forward, you know, a little ways, a few verses, no idea how much time, and we have a, we have a, a, a saga unfolding between Eve and a serpent hanging in a tree, and the inspired account tells us that, of course, the, this interchange comes out with a bad ending. Inspired account makes <clears throat> reference to the fact that one of the reasons why the ending was bad is because Eve was all by her lonesome self. She'd been told... Stick with your partner. Stick with your partner. Why? Better together. We're always stronger together. So my question is, in the beginning, it's, it's, it's obvious. It's clear to us that one by itself, not, not good, not good. Two together, yes, good. So my question is, when did that change? Or did it change? It didn't. I, I, would, I would submit to you it didn't change. I would submit to you it hasn't changed. Um, I'll submit to you another radical idea. The image of God is not a man. The image of God is a family. When God created man by himself, he said, this is, it, this is an incomplete representation of, of who I am. Created to be the image of God. But when Adam and when Eve stood by Adam's side, he said, aha, <laughs> this is it. This is good. This is good. This is beautiful. Now, we have, um, in our day and age, adopted, uh, with or without realizing it, I think, a, a, a construction that I liken to an egg carton. I'll call it, you know, the egg carton family concept. Um, and that is basically this. This is, you know, I, I'm, this is me. This is my space, my bubble. Don't get into my space, my bubble. That's you. And we're a family. We're all in the same egg carton, yeah? But don't touch me, you know? Well, this, would be, this is lauded in the world as, yeah, I mean, per personal achievement, per my personal goals, my personal satisfaction, my personal, all these things. They are, that's lauded as the end of life, right? This is, you know, this is what everybody's after. Um, but, you know, logic alone much less the word of God and practical experiences, teaches us that this system is based on selfishness. And you know, selfishness is just a fancy word for loneliness. And the lonely life is death. So here we are, you know, eyes only on ourselves, on our own 
um, on our own, on maximizing our own potential as people, as members within a family, totally missing the boat, totally forgetting that God said one by itself, unfinished, two together, beautiful. Now we have we have very uh, very beautiful examples of what happens when. I as a person, when you as a person, live for the benefit of others, as opposed to just for the benefit or success of myself. And we have a, you know, we in our family have a, have a beautiful, um, have a beautiful illustration of this every time we go and visit our, 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 the Oklahoma half of our family. Um. Shante and, and brother-in-law and, and his family. They live on a family farm. There's three or four families living on the same, you know, section. The family with the, you know, the Fisher family has been on that farm for the last 150 years or whatever it is. And they all have separate, you know, one, one family has the commercial egg production. Another family does, you know, Shante and Luke, they do organic vegetables. And the, the father, he has ranch. He does ranching and has cows and wheat and corn and whatever. But all of them together... If you watch them work, the lines between, oh, this is mine and that's yours, it's like there are none. I mean, technically there are, but when, when at 3 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, a thunderstorm changes direction and all the onions are out drying, you know, in the field up at Grandma's house, all the brothers and sisters and the cousins and Grandpa, and I mean, and Grandma, and the uncles and aunts, all of a sudden, poof, show up. And they might be Luke's onions, but it's the family's project. And it's a beautiful thing to see when your problem is my problem. And your joy is my joy. Now, that is God's ideal for the family. This is how we make each other stronger. But to make each other stronger in that way requires a certain, quotes, sacrifice. It requires a laying down of myself. And yet when we consider the fruit and the blessings that are available to us, when we embrace this construct, which is inherently unselfish, it is no sacrifice. It is no sacrifice. It's beautiful. It's only beautiful. So as we, as we look at our lives, as we look at our choices, as I look into my heart and and ask the Lord to, to search me and to, to know my attitudes. A question that we should be asking each other and asking ourselves constantly is, is my focus for myself? Am I seeking my own benefit? Am I seeking my own, um, my own success, my own, the, the furthering of my own individual goals? Or are my individual goals so wrapped up with those that God has given me that my greatest happiness is bringing them happiness? Few people today are aware of the incredibly vicious attack that Satan has made on the institution of marriage through one of his most loyal agents. Many of us have grown up believing and accepting lies of the devil that we have chosen to 
um, belief to one degree or another because they have permeated our society. Many of those lies have come to us through the influence of the feminist movement, which actually had its um, original, um, its earliest origins in the philosophies of Karl Marx. Marx was a German philosopher who lived around the same time as Abraham Lincoln, who despised God and whose objective in life was to, quote, dethrone him to put it in his own blasphemous words, and to destroy Christianity, which he saw as standing in the way of his goal of destroying capitalism. Most of us associate the name of uh, Karl Marx with socialism, but we have no idea how much his philosophies have influenced our culture and thinking. His intention was to overturn God's order of things to annihilate old values, to weaken the God-ordained male leadership in the home, to make women unhappy with the joys, yeah, the, the privileges of womanhood, and ultimately to destroy the family. His intentions have been carried out very faithfully by many followers with a, with a fearful de degree of success. Now, if the term feminism sounds essentially harmless to you, as it once did to me. I would like you to listen as Edwin and I read to you a number of quotes from the mouths of leaders in the feminist movement that are influential uh, people in our society. Some of them are uh, professors in uh, colleges and universities of our land. And we pray that it will, that hearing this from the horse's mouth, so to speak, will cause you to protest um, the norm that Satan has established in our society and to take a stand for God's wise and beautiful order of things. The first statement that I just want to read is the nuclear family. Now, these are quotes from uh, those Individuals who are, that are leaders of the feminist, feminist movement. movement. The nuclear family must be destroyed and people must find better ways of living together. Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. In order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families and communally raise them. Women's liberation, if not the most extreme, then certainly the most influential neo-Marxist movement in America, has done to the American home what communism did to the Russian economy, and most of the ruin is irreversible. The objective of every feminist reform, from legal abortion to child care programs, is to undermine traditional family values. No woman should have to deny herself any opportunities because of her special responsibilities to her children. We can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. Only when manhood is dead, and it will be when ravaged femininity no longer sustains it, only then will we know what it is to be free. By the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. And I believe that many of those children do. 
The following was spoken by Victoria Woodhull, which you will hear a little bit more about in a few minutes. And she says, they say I have come to break up the family. I say amen to that with all my heart. In 1975, Laurel Damstedt wrote a research paper entitled Attending Spirits. And this paper showed how the women's rights movement of the 1900s was directly linked to spiritualism. In that paper, she made the following assertion. Feminism has seeped into every fiber of the current generation. It is not something most of us are even aware of because education has, be, has been thoroughly revamped by feminism. It seeks to change attitudes even in kindergarten and throughout school. Most people living in this culture don't even realize how much feminism has affected them. Friends, if we put these bold statements that we were just quoting side to side with the Word of God, we see clearly that they are diametrically opposed to God's principles. And yet, these statements reflect the climate of the culture in the midst of which most of the women in this room have been raised and nurtured. No wonder we have many of us, myself included, in the past developed a distaste for the biblical picture of godly womanhood. The world considers it oppressive, it treats it with disdain, and it advocates that to be significant, to be fulfilled, we must make our mark in the world. We have bought into this lie, often leaving the highest, most sacred calling that God entrusted us with. And the most important place, the home, vacant in pursuit of our personal fulfillment elsewhere. As we examine the writings of Ellen White, we discover that back during those initial stages of the rise of feminism, God used her to give a clear warning to his people in regards to the women rights, women's rights movement. In doing um, her research paper, Laurel Damstick found that in the September 26, 1871 Review and Herald, um, Uriah Smith published a most insightful article on Victoria Wood Woodhall. This is the lady whose quote was the last one we read. She was a renowned spiritualist who, because of direct spirit leading, became one of the foremost women's rights activists of her time. Do you want to be in her company? In an account of spiritualistic mediums of that day, he... Uriah Smith told how the career of Mrs. Woodhull was planned, quote, planned and executed thus far by the spirits. He says, Victoria never stopped believing that the spirits had brought her into the world to lead a social revolution. She said that from her birth and even before, she had been marked for this fate. No wonder Mrs. White gave the warning to all women, found in, in uh, Testimonies, Volume 1, page 421, that those who feel called to join the movement in favor of women's rights may as well sever all connection with the third angel's message, she said. 
In summary, friends, feminism has been one of those philosophies that have permeated our culture and made even well-meaning Christian women like myself adopt the notion that women's rights, equal rights, that sounds good, doesn't it? Injustices should be corrected. It, it's a legitimate and noble desire. But more than that, friends, it has created a cl climate in our culture where it becomes the most natural thing in the world to be at least to some degree discontent with the biblical order of things. Many women just running into some of those passages in the New Testament just want to read over them very fast. We find them distasteful. And Ellen White says, in their desire for a higher sphere, many have sacrificed true womanly dignity and nobility of character and have left undone the very work that heaven appointed them. The East of today do not want to go back to God's plan. They have adopted Lucifer's discontent with roles and spheres and look for a utopia of equal opportunity. That's fearful. Laurel um, concludes, I cringe, she says, at the naivety of us as a people facing this invasive feminist ideology. Feminism is not out to just right injustices or to get men to quit hitting their wives. Feminism is successfully restructuring society and in the process of reconstructing and is in the process of reconstructing Christianity, not to mention Adventism. The worldview has been irrevocably changed. Society is not going back, and our church is at the crossroads. What shall we, Christian women, do about this? Well, we started off our presentation this afternoon by talking about God's purpose for us as families, and then we began by sharing what the enemy has done to try to break up those families. The first that we shared is the uh, good thing of individualism, and Sean shared just how that destroys, what effect that has on our families. The second that Maria has been sharing with has been the effect of feminism. The third one that I'd like to share with you um, as we finish up this presentation is our lifestyle. Now, you know, the reality of it is that uh, God has called us to do many good things. As we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and we want to serve him, the challenge that we quickly come up against is just how much do we serve him? About 20 plus years ago, when I convinced this young lady to marry me, I was living in Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, and my bride wanted to go to the mission field. Well, I am a missionary's kid, and I really liked the idea of her wanting to go to serve. So I convinced her that uh, if she married me, I would take her there one day. It took a few decades for us to get there, and this year... As my family and I, we, as we go to fellowship with the folks in Germany, we will then, at the conclusion of our uh, meeting with the, uh, uh, sharing with the folks there, we're going to join Luke and Shante in the Congo. 
the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they will be serving five months out of the year when they're not growing anything in Oklahoma. They will be doing their mission work in the DRC. So we're going to go and join them for several weeks in the DRC. So we finally get to go to the mission field, a little bit of an indirect route. But I like the idea of going to serve. And, and I've loved it that my family, my children, have all embraced the notion of service. But what we found in the early beginnings of our family was that our lifestyle negatively impacted on the notion of family. I'll tell you what happened in our home. You see, we were living in, in the suburbs of Chicago at the time, and I was uh, fortunate to be part of a teaching program at Hinsdale Hospital out in the western suburbs of Chicago. My career was that of training physicians to be family physicians. I loved it. But in addition to my doing that, I was also involved in private practice. I was doing community health education programs. I was involved in a television ministry you may have heard of called Lifestyle Magazine. And then I got involved with a children's television series called Genesis Attic. And then I was involved as if I did not have enough time, as if I had too much time on my hands. We were involved in church planting. Now, I have to tell you that with all of the activities that we were involved in, good things, our life was hectic, to put it to you straight. And then in addition to that, our standard of living meant that we were getting increasingly into debt. And we were living from paycheck to paycheck while raising our family. We were living the American dream, or as I now fondly refer to it as the American nightmare. We were doing good work. Don't mistake me. I enjoyed doing what I was doing, but we paid a price, not balancing our lifestyle to accommodate the family. It's almost as if my family needed to accommodate my hectic lifestyle as opposed to be making adjustments in my lifestyle to accommodate my family. Do you understand the difference? And let me tell you something, this kind of thing creeps up on you, and before you know it, you're in it. And it is a very big challenge to begin to reprioritize what is important and to have balance in the family. We live in a time where it seems that everyone is pressed for time. Technology has provided us with more so-called time-saving devices than ever before in the history of mankind. And yet, it seems that we have never been more stressed. We have never had less time for meaningful communication and relatedness in the family. We've never had less time for God. We have a certain set of expectations in our modern life of what success means in every area of life, in education, for instance. And every, um, everything that we are engaged in requires more and more time. It competes for the time that we have. Along with its time-saving devices, technology with its explosion of communication and social media has ushered into our daily experience time-consuming practices that rob us of huge amounts of time and help create a very 
hectic place, uh, pace in our lives. This is not by accident, friends. It is by design of an enemy of our souls who knows that busyness can easily lead to stress. When it is in excess, it, it can lead to stress, anxiety, a lack of intimacy, and emptiness. As Edwin was talking about our lives 20, 20 to 30 years ago, while my husband was very busy with his career and, and many good things, I, on the home front, um, as he was very absent from our lives, was very overwhelmed with my duties of housekeeping and child rearing and homeschooling, three of the four that we have now. And I felt compelled to take advantage of all the educational opportunities that were available to me. Like anything that the homeschool support groups would advocate, I felt like I just, I had to do that. If I was going to give my children a good education, I have to do that also. Do you see how society and the world affects our thinking and suddenly we are just marching to the beat of a different drum. So there I went to gym class and field trips and music lessons and group class and orchestra practice. And I felt guilty if we missed out on any of it. I was perpetually too fatigued to rise early consistently, to be nurtured spiritually, to be the woman, the wife, and the mother that God was calling me to be. Now, in, in our cases, as young people, we may not have... You know, children and a bunch of people to, to educate under our care. But the same thing can happen when we get caught in this whirlwind of school and work and whatever other activities and social life that we have going on. You know, after I um, graduated from high school, like I was really excited when I graduated from high school. I was like, you know, I'm going to take a year off before I start college and I'm going to have time to you know, do all these different things that I have interest in, more time to put to music and blah, blah, blah. I had all these ideas. Well, then I graduated from high school, and sure enough, a, a nice chunk of my day that had been dedicated to studies was, was freed up, and I immediately started filling it with all these other things I thought I should be able to do. Well, it seems like since then, when, when, when I did start college, do you think all the other activities got kicked out? No, not really. They got squeezed, for sure, but everything started just packing in, and then I started more volunteer positions and started working in the, our ambulance service, and all these things just got packed, 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 packed. And then, of course, you know, as everybody's like, well, do you have any social media? I'm like, oh, I don't really have time for it. But then, you know, gradually some sneaks in here, sneaks in there, sneaks in everywhere. And eventually we find that we are so busy with things that may or may not have eternal rewards, but especially the things that don't have eternal rewards, or necessarily, I mean, they can. For instance, social media, that can be used in, in a way to bring blessing to other people and to uplift and, and challenge them. But at the same time, I was finding that, you know, at night when I'd be done with a busy, you know, long day, I would crash and I'd be so tired. And I would be so tired, in fact, that I would just only have time just for a short prayer because it was like, you know, God, I'll spend time with you in the morning. I am like, super tired now. So I'd have a short prayer, but then I would look at a few pictures on Instagram. And eventually one of these days I was like, you know what? I am sick of this. I am sick of being a person that doesn't have enough time for God, but somehow has time for social media. And so I ended up cu uh, cutting out 
essentially all of it out of my life, to, to be able to refocus what my priorities are. My priorities are not running around and getting everything that I possibly can on my plate. My priorities are God first, and then the things that matter for eternity. And I have found that when I have had those priorities straight, my life really flourishes, as opposed to when I get distracted and pull all these other things in on my life. We end up living the same, the same rat trap as young people that my parents were living as you know, parents of four young children or have, have lived throughout the years. It's always going to have to be intentional because the devil always likes to crowd things on and society is built so that we have access to essentially everything. And so young people, I just want to encourage you that as we are living our lives now, to start that intentionality now, to start being focused now and, and understanding that these things have their place but making sure they are in their place and then our lives will be much more fruitful to the glory of God. You know, if you don't know, uh, let me tell you that the insidious speeding up of our lives. It's kind of like that old story about a frog who started off in cold water and the pot just get hotter and hotter and hotter. Frog did not know it until he was cooked. My point is that we don't start off, the enemy is very subtle. It doesn't start off by boom, all of a sudden you're overwhelmed. Just slowly but slowly it gets a little faster and faster and faster. Let me tell you, it, it happens with the very best of intentions. Let's say that you are finished now, you're, you're finishing up with your studies, and you're now going to enter into profession. So you decide, oh, let me join LinkedIn. All right. Now, that's a good thing, because now we're going to be networking, aren't we? LinkedIn. So next thing you know, LinkedIn, people want to link with you. Then you're linking with more people. The next thing you know, you're reading LinkedIn, and then you're sucked right in. Let me tell you, it's a challenge. I found myself purging myself of all of those things that I was linked to. In my profession, as a clinician, I need to keep up with what's going on. And so I found myself sorting through 100 good emails a day. Then I said, okay, back off. Zhoop, I've backed off. Now I just counted today. I'm up to 120. And I'm going, okay, time to refocus. Time to get reprioritized. This is the subtlety that we have of being involved in good things good things, but it increases the hectic pace of life. And then something has to give, because you only have but so much time in your day. You have a little less time with your family, a little less time with the relationships that are very important with you, important to you. And as a result, you find yourself struggling to keep up. You know, I do not understand this need to sit down and prioritize with my wife and chart a vision for our family when we were in the early days of our family. I did not know how to do that. And as a result, it was very difficult for us to be able to sort out the choices that came our way. When people made requests, could you? Yes, I can do that. But we did not have a way to chart to say, well, what's going to be the price of doing that? And what am I going to take off of my plate for putting this on my plate? And you, you do understand that I'm talking about all of these are all good choices. You do understand that. Well, the challenge that we are faced with is that if we are not intentional, this is the message we want to get across to you. If we are not intentional about understanding in a very practical way what it takes to raise a godly family, that would bring glory to God. 
and bear a testimony to the world around us of a well-ordered, well-disciplined family, I'm here to tell you that if you don't have a purpose, somebody else is going to set the purpose for you. And you're going to find yourself going in the direction when you finally go, what are we doing here? You'll say, oh my, we got off the path. Here's the beautiful thing. When you come to the realization, you can stop and say, wait a minute. This is not where we want to be. Let's back up. Let's stop. Let's reprioritize. Lord, what would you have us to do? And make decisions that are based not on circumstance, not on life events, not on the expectations of others and culture, like what we were doing in the American dream. What do you do when you get a bigger family? You get a bigger car. And then you need a bigger house. Then you need bigger space for all of the stuff that you're accumulating. Do you understand? You begin to start thinking intentionally where it is that we want to go. And in the midst of a very full life, you can carve out time for the most important things that can crowd out, that can be crowded out by the unimportant things. So, we are going to be sharing a vision and a challenge. We shared with you a vision and a challenge of the realities that we have an enemy out there that is not committed to a godly family. Or you taking time to set purpose and intentionality to accomplish that. And modern life is not designed to help you to develop that kind of a family. So we just want to encourage you that God's glorious purpose of nurturing a godly family that will bless the world can be accomplished. And you young people who have yet to start a family, start thinking in terms of, okay, Lord, what would you have me to do? How can I pay attention to this so that when I am at that point, I will be able to do and to, and to have a family such as what you would have us to have? Now, we would like to, at this point, bring this part of our message to a close, and then we will um, sing a song, and then we will take our break, and we will move into part two. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, help us to take more seriously the time that you have given to us to nurture a godly family. Help us to be wise in understanding the wiles of the enemy and how we can become so consumed and involved in good things that we forget the most important things. And help us always to be mindful of the fact that we want to have the kind of a family that will be a living testimony to the world of what family is and should be. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.